The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. There is a time for everything. You know, in 1952, the famous self-help preacher, Norman Vincent Peale, published the book, The Power of Positive Thinking. In it, he details the methods by which a person may employ certain tactics in order to maintain a positive mental attitude. So he begins by stating in the first chapter the ten rules for overcoming inadequacy attitudes and learning to practice faith. The rules include these things. Number one, picture yourself as succeeding. So there's this visualization visualization aspect. Think a positive thought to drown out a negative thought. Minimize obstacles. Do not attempt to copy others. Repeat, if God is for us, then who can be against us? Ten times every single day. Work with a counselor. Repeat, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me ten times every day. Develop a strong self-respect. Affirm that you are in God's hands. Believe that you receive power from God. And Peel goes on from that first chapter in which he gives those ten rules to give the importance of creating a peaceful mind. Which, we, which he says can be done through inspirational reading, through clearing one's mind, through practices of visualization. And then he continues with how to obtain consistent energy, saying that God is the source of all energy, and all you have to do is sort of tap into that, and, and on and on the book goes on. He talks about healing power through positivity and all the the effects of negativity on the body. And if you just maintain positivity, that you'll be healthier in life. That you should remove and defeat obstacles and develop mental character, he says. He says habitual worrying is the next obstacle to overcome. And you do this through emptying the mind and positive affirmations. By the time you get to chapter 12, Peel even states that letting go of anger and embracing a sense of calm can help with physical illnesses such as eczema. You can get rid of eczema by just staying positive. Now, the influence of positive thinking culture on the American church in particular cannot be overstated. It is infiltrated the pulpit and by proxy the people of God with considerable force. It's come to the point where in in some parts of the Christian world and in some church culture environments you don't ever hear negative things from the pulpit. You won't hear a rebuke. You won't hear sin being called out. You won't hear exhortations about hell and about the need to be saved. You will hear lots of encouragement 
and happiness and good feelings. As a result, some ministries won't even deal with negative emotions. In other places, some ministries have adopted Peel's version or definition of what faith is in the first place, that faith is just this sort of positivity exercise, that it's choosing to believe good. And as a result, the theology that they carry at the court drives their methodology, how they live it out, and so you're always just saying good things, repeating good things claiming good things, believing good things, or what you define to be good, more properly stated. The result being, if a Christian is struggling with a bout of depression or grieving, in common Christian culture, the most obvious response is something along the lines of, you you just got to have faith. What people mean to say is, hey, hey, don't don't be sad. Don't be frustrated or or down. If if you trust God, you you can't be negative. And as a result, Christians are pressured to suppress negative emotions and sometimes outright deny the fact that they are encountering very painful experiences and pulpits are filled with positive messages that promote ideas like hope and self-help principles that don't require a personal God at all you don't even need God all you need to do is repeat ten times these methods or these truths or these verses you don't need God to intervene you just need to reframe how you think about your situation they don't require a personal God And in the end, a gospel that is diluted to only being concerned with your best version of life right here, right now. This is the American church. Now, before I go too far into this, I have to say this. I love the church. With all of its warts and pimples, It's become popular to be a a constant criticizer of the church and and to point out all the things that are going on that are bad and wrong. And and, and I don't want to get on that train, but I do think that we have to acknowledge that there are some things that have crept in that dilute the truth of the gospel. And I I love the church with all of its imperfections. I do. But I want to see the church grow in healthiness. I want to see it shedding ideas that are poison to the well of God's grace and influence in our lives and poison to the gospel. So in contrast to this sort of positivity thinking, Solomon here says, look, there is a time for everything. There is. I mean, there's a season for love. But there is also a season for hatred. There's a season when when you're you're building up. 
and you're nurturing, you're caring for, and then there's a season where sometimes you are tearing down, breaking down. There is a, a season in which you should weep. But there's also this other season in which joyful, exuberant laughter should come bubbling up from our hearts, rejoicing. There is an appropriate response for everything that goes down in life. And listen, check this out. It's not always positive. Sometimes the appropriate response for the believer is a negative response. Sometimes sin should break our hearts. Sometimes the injustice of the world should bring grief to us, brokenness, the kind of weeping that causes us to get on our face and pray to God and ask Him to intervene. And sometimes we should see the brokenness in our families, in our communities, in our church, in our friendships, in our work situations that drives us to the presence of God and saying, God, how can I act here? What can I do? How can I intervene for your glory and the good of your people, the good of the world, the good of your kingdom? So what is the myth that we're addressing today? It's this myth somehow that Christians should always be happy. That Christians should always be happy. This is the myth that we're hoping to address this week as we close out our Mythbusters series. Should we be positive all the time? Should Christians ever have negative emotions? Is it okay for us to feel anger? Or even hatred? Is it alright for us to wrestle with depression or sadness? Is it okay when we are offended by injustice or when we're indignant that no one seems to care about those that are not cared for? Is it okay? In short, and I can shorten the sermon down to this right here, yes, it's okay. There's an appropriate season for all of those things. But I have to ask the question, okay, so where, where does this myth come from? And, and, and maybe not so much here. I mean, we talk about depression. We, we deal with, you know, sadness and brokenness. And, and, but in other places, in churches that I have been a part of in the past, there is this sort of positivity culture where you just don't say negative things. Where everything should be uplifting and building up and encouraging. And there shouldn't be anything negative. Where does that come from? Well, I, I think first of all, it starts with the definition of what faith is. I think fundamentally what undergirds kind of all of this is a really poor definition of faith. So let me give you an example. Flip with me, if you would, over to Hebrews chapter 11. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I, I just want to point out this list that is here. For those of you who don't know, Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. Because in it is a detail of Old Testament history that recounts all the different people who have had faith 
in the Old Testament. Now, it's not exhaustive, it's not every single person, but it's sort of the highlights reel of people who had faith in the Old Testament. And as you go through the list, it starts out saying, you know, hey, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, and for, and, uh, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen is made out of things that are, uh, is, is not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. Uh, verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out to a place and receive, to receive as an inheritance, he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived in that land. And on and on it goes, and it details these characters from the Old Testament. Now, now there's two lists here. The first list is the list that everybody wants to be on. It's the encouragement, it's like they... they claimed lands that God had promised them and they built boats and saved souls and, and they, they overcame giants and they, you know, victory, victory, victory. The second list in the last half of the chapter says that they wandered about in the wilderness, destitute, men of whom the world was not worthy. Some of them were sawn in half. They suffered incredibly. Now here's the point of the author. These people over here and these people over here both had faith. But their experiences in life, some of them were victorious and some of them suffered incredibly. But both of them had faith. Everybody wants to be on list A. Everybody wants to define faith as just this positive belief that God is good no matter the circumstance and that you are, that, that by believing this, that somehow, kind of like the secret movement or whatever, you're just putting this belief out into the universe and by the law of attraction, good things are going to happen as a consequence. That's hogwash. The reality is, when the Bible is describing the faith of these heroes from the Old Testament, it's saying, listen, the people who saw victory trusted God. And the people who suffered immensely trusted God. God is faithful to those who are experiencing victory and joy, and God is faithful to those who are suffering and experiencing defeat. Faith trusts God no matter the circumstance. Listen, and this is important. It does not deny the circumstance. So for a Christian to adopt an attitude that says, you know, I should always just be positive and upbeat, I should always be happy about everything in life, it is not really accurate. I mean, 
the reality is people go through really hard things. And just saying, slapping a sort of, you know, bumper sticker slogan on it, like, hey, you just got to have faith, does not comfort. It condemns. And it doesn't even help. It's not even instructive. How do I have faith? When I, when I am feeling defeat, I, I've tried to trust God and I'm experiencing just a battering in my marriage or in my life or with my kids or in my health or with my finances or in this struggle. How, how I, I want to have faith. I'm, I'm like the guy who came to Jesus and said, I, I believe, but could you help my unbelief? So as a result, with a poor understanding of faith, I think sometimes people live in such a way that you're just supposed to just like believe good things no matter what the circumstances are. Well, actually, sometimes the circumstances really, really suck. That's the reality of it. And sometimes what believers need to do is say, I am really struggling right now. Like Paul the Apostle in 2 Corinthians, you might even say, I am struggling to the point where I even despair of life. But this happened to me in order that I would not be a person who who trusts in man's strength or ability, but in God who raises the dead. Sometimes we need encouragement that anchors us to truths that are eternal because what is happening in the temporal is so incredibly heavy to deal with. So one is a poor understanding of faith. The second thing that I think is unhelpful that sometimes happens in Christian culture is this sort of bumper sticker Christianity. This is the method by which Christians quote certain verses that are divorced of their original context as a method of sort of anchoring themselves to some shorthand truth. And it's not always bad, but sometimes these verses get quoted out of context and they don't actually correspond with where those verses actually come from. They don't correspond with the passage from which they came. So let me give you a couple of examples. Here's one from Psalm 144, verse 15. And usually it gets quoted only the last half of the verse. The last half of the verse says, happy is the people whose God is the Lord. So that that gets thrown out there. You see it on a coffee cup in the morning as you're sipping your caffeine. You're like, happy It's the people whose God is the Lord. I I should be happy, right? And it's like, it's meant to be encouraging. But would you do me a favor? Would you just flip over real quick? Psalm 144, let's look at the rest of it. I think context makes a big difference. I'm gonna run you around the Bible a little bit today. Okay, the actual verse is verse 15. Blessed are the people to whom such blessings fall. Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. So the ESV renders happy, blessed. It's the same word. It can mean happiness. Okay, but let's look at the previous verses. Let's start out verse 1. Blessed be the Lord, my rock, who trains my hands for war 
and my fingers for battle. He is my steadfast love and my fortress, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield and, and he in whom I take refuge, who subdues people under me. O Lord, what is man that you regard him or the son of man that you think of him? Man is like a breath. His days are like a, a passing shadow. Bow your heavens, O Lord, and come down. Touch the mountain so that the mountains so that they smoke. Flash forth the lightning and scatter them. Send out your arrows and rout them. This is a song about defeating enemies. He's talking about killing people, humans, other humans, enemy combatants. And then he, as he goes on, he says, I'm, I'm going to praise you as I have victory in this, this battle that I'm facing. I'm going I'm to sing praises to you. you. You're the one, verse 10, who gives victory to kings, who rescues David, his servant, from the cruel sword. Rescue me and deliver me out of the hand of foreigners whose mouths speak lies and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. May our sons and our youth be like plants full grown and our daughters like corner pillars cut from the structure of the palace. This is a, a prayer saying like, preserve us, protect us, bless us, and if you do these things, we're going to be pretty stoked about it. If God comes through with this prayer, I'm going to be pretty happy. What it does not mean is that you should always be happy. Here's another one. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Again, it's a partial quote of a full verse. And in this passage, what has happened is Ezra, the, the, the priest, has read to the people who have now left Babylon where they were held as slaves. They were in captivity in, ba in Babylon. They've come back now to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the temple. But listen, the place has been wasted. It's destroyed. The walls are broken down. The, 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 everything is just absolutely wiped out. So when they come back to this city that was this thriving worship center that had the, the, the temple that Solomon built in its presence, when they come back to this city, it's just rocks. It's just rubble. Then Ezra gathers the people. He says, hey, I want to read to you the, the law of God, and he reads through the law of God, in which are detailed blessings and curses for the obedience of Israel. And they realize, they make this connection, that the reason everything has been wiped out and destroyed is because of our sin. And when they hear the law being read to them, they break out in public, unified, resounding weeping. And then Nehemiah and Ezra seek to encourage the people. <laughs> they say, hey, listen, God's not done. His judgment isn't final. We're back here. We can rebuild. We have a new beginning. We can start again. The joy of knowing that is a strength to us so we don't just sit here and cry all day. We've got work to do. It's time to get busy. See, they were weeping because they were broken by the reality that the destruction that has come upon Jerusalem was due to their sin against God. And their civilization lies in ruin because of God's judged them 
because of God's judgment against them. And he did it exactly like he promised to. But the encouragement for them was that they can take joy in knowing that if they turn again to the Lord, then in the same way that he judged them, he will also restore them. And that this was the moment that God was beginning the restoration process. That's the original context. But that's not what you see in a, you know, the wall graphic, the, the bumper sticker, the, the, the coffee cup logo, the, the wall hanging, or the picture frame. All you see is the, the joy of the Lord is your strength. So people say, well, you know, they, they think, I, I think a lot of times, that I, I'm just supposed to be happy all the time. I'm just supposed to be this giddy person because I've got God. I, I've got that joy, joy, joy down deep in my heart. Not necessarily. John 15, verse 11. And then John 17, 13. Here's Jesus, two verses about joy. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. But, and then in verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 13. But now I am coming to you and, and these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. And this is Jesus speaking in both of those places. But this passage, both uh, in chapters 16 and 17 and then on into 18, uh, th this passage is the night before the crucifixion. So let, let's add context here. Jesus is talking about joy, and he says, yeah, I, it's my desire that joy would be in you, my followers, my believers. I want that for you. Why is he saying that? Because things are about to get super heavy for the apostles. These passages are the words of Jesus to his disciples the night before he goes to the cross. In this same section of Scripture, Jesus talks about the reality of, of this kingdom that he's building and this place that he's preparing for his followers, for his believers, for his disciples. He talks about their need to stick close to him and in order to bear fruit. Talks about the, the, the reality that the world is going to hate them and persecute them, even to the point where where the person who is killing them thinks that they're doing God a service. Jesus tells them that someday these religious leaders will try and kill them. And then Jesus prays by the time you get to John 17 for his disciples and asks the Father to preserve them through the trials that they will face together and God that, that God will build unity within them. The same kind of unity that Jesus experienced with the Trinity, that, that that same kind of unity would be present. Essentially, that their faith would not fail and that they would not fall apart through what is about to take place. Now, Jesus gets up from this discourse where he talks about joy. He takes his disciples over to the Mount of Olives. He sets them aside. He leaves them behind. He goes about a stone's throw pace off. He kneels down and he begins praying vigorously. And he is so distressed in that moment that he is sweating drops of blood. The capillaries in his, 
in his face from the stress that he is under is so severe that those capillaries bust under the weight of that stress. And his face is bleeding while he is crying out to God. And then he comes back to his disciples. He finds them sleeping. He's like, guys, bloody face and all. Can't, can't, you, just, can't you stay awake for even a, a little bit for me? He goes and prays again. He comes back, finds him sleeping again. He says, it's all right, forget it. Sleep on. He yields himself, surrenders himself to the will of the Father. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then he went through excruciating circumstances, was hanged physically upon a torture device, whipped repeatedly, and suffocated in public humiliation and execution. Think he did it with a smile? No. When he was sweating drops of blood, was he happy? No. He was stressed. Deeply, deeply distressed. So we quote verses about joy out of context where we see that Jesus did not always have happiness. Another place this comes up, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now this is a great exhortation. It's at the very end of 1 Thessalonians where Paul is seeking to comfort a persecuted church. Now this church started under difficult circumstances and Paul on a second missionary journey actually had to flee Thessaloniki in order to escape this persecution. And then he's wondering about how this church is doing. He's like, hey, did these guys make it in the face of persecution? He sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, Thessaloniki, modern-day Thessaloniki. And, 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 and Timothy goes back. He's like, their, their faith made it. <laughs> they survived. They did it. They're holding it together. And, and Paul is overjoyed at this. He's like, hey, guys, listen, I want to just give you some quick instructions here. Keep doing what you're doing. Keep rejoicing. Keep facing this difficulty head on. Keep clinging to your faith until Jesus returns to establish his eternal kingdom. It's not that you should always be happy. He's saying keep clinging to Jesus no matter what comes. That's what faith is. So you can see that these short verses are often quoted in such a way that when removed from their context, the meaning of them can be twisted, maybe unintentionally even, to mean something different than what they actually say. And that is this idea that Christians should always be joyful, always be positive, always be happy. And the short verses are not a good representation of the entire thought. So, question, why is this a myth? Why is it a myth? Well, first of all, because negative emotions are not bad. Like, negative things that you feel are not bad. They're just feelings. As a matter of fact, I would say sometimes the negative reaction that you experience is God-honoring. 
It's supposed to happen. You're supposed to be provoked. They're a useful tool for instruction, for sanctification, for training. Let me give you an example. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there's a situation that's unfolding in Corinth. And in chapter 5, Paul talks about a guy who has his father's wife and is sleeping with her. And he says to them, let me just read it to you, because this is, this is too good. He says to the Corinthian church, like, you've you got to deal with this, right? So 1 Corinthians chapter 5, first couple verses here. Let me find it. He says, it's actually reported that there is that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And he says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? You hear the question? Why are you so positive about this? Shouldn't you be brokenhearted about this? Shouldn't you be weeping over the fact that in your midst this kind of sin is happening and nobody's doing anything about it? Shouldn't you be reacting negatively towards this? And he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. There should be action, there should be mourning, the emotion, the proper emotional response to what is happening, and then there should be action that comes as a consequence of that. Deal with the sin. The mourning was supposed to be the appropriate emotional response to the sin. This mourning is then supposed to translate into actions that deal with the sin. And Paul's exhortation to the church at Corinth was that this person should not be permitted to fellowship as though nothing is wrong, as though everything is okay. And so he encourages the church to deliver this man over to Satan by the time you get to verses 4 and 5. He says, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, sadly... I I fear that in our context sometimes, our hearts, because we're programmed towards positivity and we don't want to experience anything negative, sometimes what happens in a church setting or in a context like ours is we are not moved appropriately, emotionally, to respond to what is happening around us. We're, We're not mourning the sin and the brokenness of the world. Paul's rebuke here still stands. He says, why are you arrogant about this? Shouldn't you be broken about this? You know, as a pastor, I've got you know, a fairly steady uh, influx of kind of negative situations that kind of that unfold in a congregation such as ours. And on the one hand, I'm thankful because I, I, I feel like we're in a place where people feel the freedom to come and bring their burdens and bring their cares and go, oh man, I am hurting in this way or we're experiencing brokenness in this way or I'm struggling here and, and I'm super thankful for that. But I, I think sometimes because pastors do that work and people tend to come in and filter in and say, hey, how you doing? And I'm really hoping you're not honest with me. 
and then file out. Like, I don't want more than a five-minute conversation and a commitment. I don't want to have to do a whole lot here. I'm just here to hear Pastor Jeremy speak or Pastor Jeff speak, and then I want to go home, grab some lunch at Mucho Gusto on the way, and call it a day. Okay? I don't even want to cook, much less carry your emotional baggage. But man, how much more do we... Listen. You are the body of Christ. You, listen, you are the means by which God will extend his presence, his ministry, his work into the world. And when people come in and, and, and there isn't the genuine exchange, and when you don't interact with them or come face to face with them and say, now how are you doing really? What's going on? How can ministry take place? There has to be the willingness on our parts to be vulnerable and honest. When somebody comes in, you go, how are you doing? You're like, man, this has been a terrible week. This week really sucks. I'm just glad I made it to Sunday. That is your moment to be the hands and feet of Jesus stepping into the situation going, really, you want to tell me about that? How can I pray for you? How can I be an encouragement? How can I empathize with you and let your pain be shared with me? How can I do for you what Jesus did for me? He took my pain. He took my suffering and he bore it on the cross. How can I now step into your life and your situation and do the same for you? Out of love and concern and care. Paul's encouragement to the church at Corinth was that they should be appropriately, negatively, emotionally moved by what is happening. And in our context, when a marriage is falling apart and you know about it, sitting on the outside and going, oh, that's messy, is not the appropriate emotional response I'm not saying you have to be the one who mixes it up every time or gets in the middle of every, peop- every person's business, but I think the one thing that should happen is that you are brought to a place at the bare minimum, bare minimum, when you know that somebody's life is falling apart and they are a brother or a sister especially, you should be coming to the Lord and interceding on their behalf. Saying, oh God, Pour out your grace upon this family. Sustain them. Minister to their needs. Reveal truth. Bind the enemy. Take away these things that are, that are hurting and wounding their marriage and breaking up their home. God, work here because I care about this. When we are unmoved and unaffected and do not have a proper negative response, we are unmoved to action. You see that? Listen, negative emotions are not bad. They're just emotions. And they're by design. God built them into us. Did you know that God feels? Did you know that? Think about this. In the Old Testament, God the Father is described as as angry and as loving, as grieving and as joyful. Three times in the Psalms, God is described as laughing, as hating, 
as being moved with compassion. The Son, Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is sometimes grieved, is sometimes provoked to anger. He's sometimes distressed and stressed and overwhelmed, and sometimes he is rejoicing, and sometimes he's even weeping. The Spirit, we're told in the New Testament, can be grieved, can be provoked. Think of Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira where he says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit and provoked his anger? Like, this is a bad deal here. We're told that the Spirit groans with compassion and makes intercession on our behalf. In other words, the, the pain in our lives moves the Spirit of God to where he groans to the Father and intercedes on behalf of us and says, oh God, please work in Jeremy's life because he's a wreck. In other words, our emotions exist as a reflection of who God is. We are bearing his image when we respond with emotions. Now, that doesn't mean that emotions should dictate action, right? But the emotions that are happening there are reflective of who God is. Our emotions exist as a reflection of God and his image. It is all not only happy or positive, some of God's reactions are negative. But they're right. And they're not sinful. So why then is the truth better? Let me give you three reasons very quickly. First of all, when we understand this, we are untied. We live together in such a way that we give one another the freedom to experience our feelings rather than deny them. Rather than suppress, we express. We, we talk about them with one another. We receive encouragement and strength from e each other. And the next time some, you're in a setting, maybe it's a small group, maybe it's a huddle group, maybe, maybe it's just you and your friends getting together, the next time you get together and somebody spills something out that is, that is negative and it sort of brings the temperature of the room down, instead of trying to avoid it and not wanting to get involved, press into that and pray for them and encourage them and speak into that situation or, or, or shut up and put your arm around them and go, I am so sorry that you're hurting right now. It breaks my heart to see you like this. Enter in with compassion. Listen, we're healthier emotionally when we allow God to express his nature through us, when we react to the world around us and all of its brokenness. When dealing with relationships, we allow ourselves and others to feel when we encourage appropriate and God-honoring and biblical responses to what we feel, all of a sudden the, the chains are taken off. We don't have to fake it with one another. We're untied from putting on airs and putting up some front, and we're brought to a place of being able to be honest with each other. Second of all, we are sanctified. The Bible gives constant instruction about the seasons of mourning, of enduring suffering, about being patient, about how to appropriately use anger. In Ephesians 4.26, it says, Be angry. And then the second half of that, and don't sin. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. Like, the emotion's not wrong. What you do with the emotion is what is sinful. So he says, be angry and sin not. Listen, emotions are just us reacting to the brokenness of this world. 
It's like a blinking light on a dashboard, right? Telling you, hey, something's wrong here. Why are you reacting this way? It's because something is wrong. So let's enter into that with one another. Emotions shouldn't drive behaviors. The truth of God's word drives our action, our behaviors after the fact. But when the light starts blinking, we are meant to pay attention. It's like a, a, God has built into us a radar for when something is broken. And all of a sudden, that blip comes up on the screen. It's like, blip, oh, something's off here. I'm supposed to pay attention. I'm supposed to seek God. I'm supposed to look for counsel. I'm supposed to resource his word and think about how do I deal with this. Otherwise, I just ignore the blinking light and I wait till something blows up. We're meant to pay attention. And lastly, God is glorified. Listen, when we allow the freedom to both be happy and sad of the people we love, we teach them that there is no shame in being human. We allow them the freedom to just be people. One of the things that can happen in a church environment is because this is so pervasive is that everybody has to put their best foot forward and you're not really free to be a real human with real struggles. And so what happens is people come and they put on their good face and they leave and nothing is changed, nothing is affected, no ministry is happening because they're not being honest. In environments where God's people are free to feel rather than being taught not to feel, we become agents for God's kingdom in the world. This is because we're moved to action. We listen with empathy. We enter into the hard places. We ask questions with genuine concern. And, and our response is not simply just think positively, think good, and think differently about the issue. The, the response is, let's go to Jesus together. God is present now. He can work. Let's ask God to give us perception, to help us understand what is true and what is false. Let's ask God to intervene because God is personal, and he's here, and he cares about you, and he cares about your situation. God is glorified when our hearts are stirred to action. God gave us emotions so that we can respond appropriately to the brokenness of the world. It is this very instinct, guys, that causes people to get saved. Do you realize this? This, this negative emotional response that we have sometimes is what drives us to our need for a savior. When we look at our sin, we go, oh, I'm so screwed up. I am so broken. Who is going to rescue me? How can I get out of this? All of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene as the mighty one who can save. And all of a sudden, we go, I can't. I am absolutely broken beyond repair and there's nothing that I can do. I'm powerless to do anything. If, if you don't intervene in my situation, if you don't save me, I will never be changed. That negative emotional response drives us to the Savior to embrace him. And then when we find out that God gave us a Savior through his Son, the joy that we find is also an appropriate response. When all of a sudden we find ourselves like, oh, and he did it. He came through. He did save me. He did give me his spirit. He did make me a part of his family. And the joy that follows is the appropriate 
emotional response to that as well. We're meant to feel. And ultimately, when we encounter the hard things in this life, Romans 8 tells us that it is pushing us to put our hope not in this world, but in the redeemed world that God is going to make in the new heavens and the new earth. And to put our hope in the gospel. The happiness we seek is a God-given and primal drive that will ultimately be fulfilled in a world that is no longer broken by the presence of sin, by death, or by the enemy. In the meantime, we're not just supposed to be happy, we're supposed to weep with those who weep. We're supposed to let the emotions that affect us motivate us to care for the lost, to love the hurting, to comfort and empathize with the grieving, to hate injustice, and to preach the good news that Jesus came to save sinners and to fix what is broken in the world. Let your emotions drive you to God-honoring action in the world. Or as in the words of one wise man, for everything there is a season and there is a time for every matter under heaven, not just happiness, for joy and for sorrow. A time to build up and a time to break down. Amen? Would you pray with me? as Mitch and the guys come forward. Father, thank you so much for your word. It's instructive, Lord. Left to our own devices and trying to carry things with our own logic, we, we would be so limited. We can only see what we can see, but God, you give us eternal wisdom. You speak the words of life. Where else can we go but to you? Lord, I pray for those who felt bound to put on airs and to fake it. God, would you set them free to be honest today about their brokenness? Lord, as fellowship takes place and as we respond to your word in worship, God, I pray that when we behold the truths of your word, that it would provoke in us a deep desire to press in and, and, and rejoice in who you are and give thanks and, and maybe to repent of sin and, and to see where we've been weak. God, would you stir our hearts to action in worship of you? And in the fellowship that takes place, God, may we be sensitive to those people that we can be an encouragement to or a strength to or that we can be a compassionate and listening ear to. God, that we would be instant in prayer, that we would not say, hey, I will pray for you, that we'd say, let's go to Jesus now, that we'd be stirred to action as we fellowship with one another. God, would you, would you take the reins of our hearts and make this a place where true and authentic ministry is happening because the body of Christ is being the body of Christ. So God, have your way in this place. In the name and for the glory of Jesus, amen. The chasm that lay between us How high the mountain I could not climb In desperation